Welcome to episode 19 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my travel-weary co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're a pair of hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how does it feel to be back in Texas? Nice, although I had a great time in Bozeman, Montana. Um, no snow here when I got back, but it was it was close to freezing, <laughs> which was actually warm because it was, uh, I think, the last day... Uh, on my trip to Bozeman, it was minus 37 below zero <laughs> as I was heading to the airport. Ooh, you're, you're pretty close to the, the crossover point from Fahrenheit to Celsius. I actually was not cold any, at any point while I was there. I, was, I guess dressed appropriately <laughs> or whatever. Um, but when I got off the, uh, the plane in San Antonio, I hadn't really paid attention to the weather here. I had a layover in Denver, so I switched to a little bit more comfortable clothing once I got out of Bozeman. And uh, basically was freezing by the time I got out of the airport in San Antonio. Anyway, it was a good trip. Um, or I got to see their shop, Pocket and C's shop in uh, Bozeman. They'd, uh, it's a pretty new shop. I think they moved in, I want to say a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago. I, uh, I want to say October. Was it that far back? Yeah, because they had just finished moving before I sent my machine back to be refurbed. And then I moved shortly after. And they, uh, it still looks brand new. And that's like their fourth commercial space since they started. So they're, they're going pretty fast. And I, I was lucky to catch Matt and Michelle Hurdle for about an hour and actually recorded an episode with them in the shop. Audio is a little rough, but I think their story comes through. You want to hear it? Yeah, let's roll it. Good morning, Matt and Michelle. Hey, good, morning. good morning. I really uh, want to thank you for inviting me to visit Montana and come see Pocket and See. Uh, it's an exciting machine, brand new shop. It's just amazing what you guys are, are doing here in Bozeman. Thanks. So, um, so I know most of my users or my our listeners know I'm I have a Pocket and See. Winston has I have two now, and Winston has a Pocket and See, um, and I have I have the test machine, the new V250 with the NSK 50K RPM spindle, which is really doing well in the tests, and now available for purchase or at least for pre-order, right? Right. Yep. So um, five-axis CNC machine. Of all the stuff I post on Instagram, that machine gets like the most questions because it's <laughs> such a uh, unique, I guess, idea of putting five-axis CNC machining on you know, a hobby type person's desk. Like, how did you guys come up with that idea? And I'm sure there was a long path to the machine that's shipping now. Like what were all the little intermediate steps to get here? So when we were living in Washington state, we were spending a lot of time on the weekends and evenings outside of our day jobs tinkering. And, um, we kind of came to the point where we knew that we wanted to move back to Montana um, our family is here and it's just what our home is. So we started to think like, what could we do to create our own jobs to bring back to Montana? So if we could just focus some of this energy that we're using doing instructables contests for something with a bigger picture. And Matt has a background in machining and had always wanted to have his own desktop mill. and. You know, this was around 2010. So in, and I did not really like the design of those machines. Like I would look at it and it just was not inspiring. They weren't nice to look at. And so he kind of kept going back to the drawing table until one day, like we kind of had like plans of how we wanted to do the timeline that we were hoping to probably launch it in like a year at that point. And one day he came to me and he was like, Michelle, I have, something I need to tell you and you're not going to like it. <laughs> and he told me that he thought we needed to go five axis instead of three. Um, because we could see that there were other three axis machines starting to come into play. And we just felt like we needed something to differentiate ourselves because we don't have, we weren't trained in marketing or business. Like the, our technical abilities was our strength. Mm -hmm. So we made the pivot to doing a five axis machine. If anyone would have told us that it would take another like four years 
to design it and prototype it before we could make it to that first Kickstarter campaign. I don't think we would have ever kept going. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was, that was how we got to a five access machine. I'm glad that you guys made that pivot. <laughs> um, yeah. You either could have entered a, a quickly, you know, getting a market that was quickly getting crowded and probably racing to cheapest price, right? Mm-hmm. For uh, um, like what happened, you know, I think that's kind of what's gone on in the 3D printer market. It's um, that would be a tough place to make a living these days in the For US. Sure. It would be. Yeah. You mentioned Inventables contests. What were y'all doing? Yeah, I made I, I made a, a USB laser device that was terrible and uh, <laughs> michelle and i worked on a we we did a cupcake tiara mm-hmm. um, uh, that was that was pretty fun i, I think both of the, i think those are the two did, did you win anything with the cupcake tiara i think i might have gotten a t-shirt yeah but <laughs> <laughs> with, with the laser one we matt did. was going for the epilogue laser <laughs> oh yeah i've always been trying to go for a, a epilogue i've always wanted to win something on one of those and I, I did i did win on the with the laser i want a, a handheld one watt laser oh yeah um but we had to get rid of those because they were so dangerous the, yeah. we're, we're, like <laughs> you, you could light things on fire so in fact, the, so I sold it to an engineer, and as he was walking away, it was lighting his pants or on fire because, because he had it on and he wasn't aware. Um, but but yeah, so we 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 spent a lot of time doing those instructables contests, and and we realized we, if we just put our efforts towards something else, that that would be a you know beneficial thing, at, or maybe, you know maybe it could be beneficial. Whereas it for sure wasn't going to be. We kind of beneficial. always had the attitude of like just continuing on the next step until like it didn't make sense to keep going forward and I would say that things fell into place but a lot of things didn't fall (laughs) fall into place but we just kept going I mean we're still really doing that I guess yeah that reminds me we had uh, Danielle Applestone on an earlier episode and she said something that's kind of really stuck with me she said basically I'm just going to keep doing this until somebody tells me I can't yeah she was talking about kind of how she got into creating a, a small semi-affordable machine for hobby and, and educational machining. So yeah, if you guys had stopped even 10 minutes to think about what are we doing, trying to bring a bypass machine <laughs> to the market, that would probably would have been detrimental to the success. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, they, they do say as an inventor, uh, you kind of have to be a little bit clueless for how much effort something <laughs> yeah. is really going to take. And, and to this day, I still have, horrible foresight for for that so i mean it works out for for product development that i don't get easily discouraged about that stuff but yeah it, you, you you have to be kind of blind it's an artful naive naivete yeah. right yes so um so i know the, when was the kickstarter when did that 2015 that's when it kicked off right yeah and i'm sure there was a lot of work before you even told the world about that yeah um, so we we when we first we first had a working prototype in the fall of 2013, and we took that to Maker Fair. That was kind of like when we showed the world. We'd been blogging about it for a couple of years up until. And that then. was the V1, right? Pretty yeah. much the and V1. Yeah. We got good enough feedback at that Maker Fair that we quit our day jobs, okay. sold our house, moved in to Matt's parents' basement, um, and came back. So came back to Montana. Um, and then, so that was like in early 2014. So then it took another year and a half of development to get to that Kickstarter. So that year and a half was, that was some of the toughest times just trying to make sure that we had everything figured out and a machine that could actually yeah. be built by someone other than Matt. Yeah. It takes a little bit of faith, right? It, it <laughs> does get through those days. And we, we actually started, um, the, the, the first machine we took to Maker Faire, um, we were going to be running it on TinyG, um, but there there was some communication issues that at, at the time TinyG only had four separate drivers, and we were going to use use two of them linked uh, to to run all five axes, and the the development just hadn't been there quite yet. So we, what we ended up doing was going to a Goodwill and finding a computer with a parallel port so we could put on uh, mock three mm-hmm. at the time and um 
And this was it, like the, two days before. Yeah, two, yeah, right, fair, yeah, right. Like very goodwill. Yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> total panic mode. Um, and then with when we got to to Maker Faire, that machine actually didn't have limit switches on it yet because we we, we were so focused on trying to get the machine to work. Um, just to make it move. To, just to make it move. Yeah, that that by the we we never even got to the limit switches. So I actually had to calibrate that machine every time we turned it on. That you you had yeah. to you had to manually <laughs> align all the axes and tell where zero was. And um, so it, yeah, that was. Ter- I mean, bringing a whole desktop computer to Maker Faire was br- brutal. The machine was half the size of the computer, and yeah. So I mean, the original, the idea of putting the the BeagleBone in the actually in the chassis and having embedded control was that wasn't there. No, on well, it, it was going to be Tiny G, and and then, oh, and then when yeah. yeah, and when when Tiny when. Uh, when we became evident that the development just hadn't quite gotten there yet, we kind of hoped to, at this point in time, we were pretty committed. So we were kind of in trouble with that. At that point in time, we were living in my parents' basement and it kind of looked like we were done. Um, then we, we were, we were saying, well, maybe we can run it with Mach 4 because Mach 4 is coming out pretty soon. And there were just some things that they said were going to be a Mach 4 that weren't in Mach 3 and Mach 4 was still very late on development too right so um and then the the group that started machine kit for beaglebone um is really what saved us and and so um yeah we we ended up having help from a gentleman named Dwayne bishop and uh all the people that worked on um machine kit and really that so machine kit is just uh linux cnc ported over to the beaglebone and realistically, we probably could have run them with a desktop computer and run Linux CNC, and and that might have actually been uh, a a smarter move. I, for some reason, we got stuck on it. it; had to fit inside the the machine. I don't know why we did that, but yeah. it seems like that could have wrecked the company. Forever um, <laughs> over, just need to fit it inside the machine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's worked out great because yeah. I, I like. Yeah, it's the only machine in my shop that I can control for my iPhone. Right, I can kind of monitor what's going on with it. And yeah, you shouldn't be controlling it with your iPhone. <laughs> so bad. But uh, and how much more it's got to go. But um, yeah. But yeah, so you know the interface being. Uh, well, I'm, I've jumped ahead to the V2, so I know the V1 user experience was a little different, right? So it was complete and total crap. It was so <laughs> hard. Yeah, I, but people people stuck with it, right? There, yeah. there were some people that were really. I, I, it kind of it reminds me of the early days of um, MakerBot that the people who really wanted to learn how to do that type of manufacturing, um, they were willing to take on the, the extra effort required to, to make the machine do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for some people, they actually had like wild success with, um, with using it, but it, it was, it was difficult cause you, you had to log in, you know, you had to SS, SSH into the machine and it just wasn't like yeah. a fire up an X window session. Yeah. 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 It was, it was terrible. Yeah. So, um, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but you guys recently made some changes. So uh, the V2 unit, you brought, uh, rock hopper into the equation, right? Which put a web server actually embedded running on the, on the BeagleBone with Linux CNC. So now you had a nice UI. Yeah. You could control the machine through any browser on any PC, Mac, whatever. Um, and I think you guys recently backported that to V1, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. John, um, he, he's the principal software designer here and he, okay. he spent a bunch of time. Um, he was, he's pretty passionate about not leaving people left behind. Um, so yeah, he, he poured that over and people can upgrade to that. And then, uh, he's also working on, um, getting the, um, V1 into the, simulator as well oh, okay. uh, I, I, su- I suspect that won't happen until probably late summer but that's just because it's an entire machine that he has to pull in right um, yes yeah the simulator we'll talk about that a little bit later that's yeah. that's been a big big uh improvement in my use of the machine and kind of giving me confidence in my tool paths and yeah because uh, i've mentioned a few times on the podcast the simulator infusion is great in autodesk fusion but it doesn't do the full five axis and machine simulation. I think they're working on that. But uh, right now it's like, it was always when I was doing A and B axis 
moves. I had to be careful you know, about collisions and stuff. So um, now I can do that in the sim, be very comfortable that I'm not going to break anything when I run the, the actual part. So yeah, Thanks, li li likewise. <laughs> yeah, we yeah we've all we've all been grateful for that internally or yeah externally. Yeah, before we released it publicly, we were using it quite a bit internally to help people troubleshoot issues they were having. So okay, it so, was fun to get to release that out. So you so you guys were in your folks' basement, um, your base, your dad's. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. yeah, my parents and. Uh, at that time, pocket didn't see, didn't see stood for no cash, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so I know you got, you know, I, I've heard, I think I read, uh, I can't remember where I read it, but um, you guys are pretty well known for uh, being, you know, very wise in how you ran your Kickstarter campaign compared to some of the other ones out there. And I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> that was Michelle. <laughs> yeah, and I think I read, uh, and then you've told me a little bit, um, you basically limited how many machines like you kind of were controlling the rate on the initial Kickstarter so that you guys didn't get overcommitted, which I thought was pretty, you know, that's a very common mistake, right? You see sure. oversubscribed Kickstarters and they have no way of making those users happy. They're going to be either waiting or running out of money because there's just no way they can ramp up that fast. Right. So that's, that was really smart. And I think, um, and you, you were very concerned about delivering on time, and making sure, you know, you could go from you know, making a prototype, right? That's one thing. Yeah. Matt, the designer or, you know, the key person, yeah. you'll probably put those together in sleep. But if you guys need to start making production parts and shipping to customers, then other people have to get involved, right? And become proficient at it. Mm -hmm. So did you do anything preparatory to make sure, like, what was your, what was your cue that, okay, we're ready to go to market with this V1? So I would say that, even though at the time the motion control was a huge issue for us, it actually was kind of a blessing in disguise that it forced us to iterate on our hardware because if we didn't have any way to move the machine, like, and we were just, it felt like we were waiting on other people to help us figure that side of things mm -hmm. out. It gave us time to just make sure that our hardware was where it needed to be. So like we had Matt's sister, help us assemble a machine in the basement. She doesn't have any technical background at all. And so we she played a lot of Legos with me yeah. as a kid. Yeah. So yeah, and she has uh, she has two boys, so she, she th does that have was, some good that, Lego skills. Yes, yeah, sure. she, yeah, but that was it. So we kind of just observed how she did the processes and made some changes. I mean, even where we're at now with the assembly has come a long ways since that original Kickstarter machine. But yeah, once we had the mechanical assembly worked out, the board design was also a big struggle for us. That was really the last thing that came together, I think. So it's your driver board um, that connected to the beagle bone. Yeah, um, yeah, we we uh, we spent a lot of time on that, and we had a f you know a few issues along the way, and um, that that. We, we just couldn't get that part of it done. And so that, yeah, I had to take on learning some of that board design stuff, which I have minimal background in electrical engineering, but, but it was, it was kind of like the last thing, you know, you, you're not going to die because of one, one thing, right. You're not going <laughs> to dump down and be like, well, we're toast. So you, you just you kind of uh, buckle down and, and, yeah. and learn that stuff. So you, you had to learn Eagle. Huh? Yeah. And, and that, <laughs> that was great. You know, it, it just, everything along the way really lined up for us. You know, everybody was so willing to help and, and, you know, Eagle, they had their free version, uh, which, you know, we used for quite a while. And then the boards were big enough that we, we had to actually buy a, a, a seat of, mm -hmm. of Eagle, but you know, you could learn on a free piece of software and, yeah. and figure out how to do that. So it, you can't, you know, be grateful enough for those kinds of things. You know, they just, and people like yeah. the guys at Osh Park gave us way more help than, yeah, they were the, yeah, they're the, be they're the yeah. best. They are great. Aren't they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, so what, while we were iterating all, on all of this hardware and figuring out the motion control, it also gave us time to develop relationships with our suppliers that by the time we hit the Kickstarter campaign, 
our major suppliers we had already been talking with for a couple of years. Probably. Yeah, so you had a good idea on pricing and deliver, yeah. you know, delivery windows. But they, it was like yeah. when we launched that yeah. Kickstarter campaign, they were all like at the ready. They knew yeah. like what we were looking to do. And be, that was, a, it helped also limiting the number of machines that we sold that it, yeah, you it give just them quantified a, what was going to be happening in the near term at least. Yeah. So I know. Um, so one question I've always wondered about is: so you you came up with this idea of a five-axis machine. You know, traditionally five-axis machines are at the high end of CNC manufacturing machine tools, right? Um, very expensive machines. Not only that, very expensive software to use those machines. So I think I'm guessing when you started, there wasn't anything like Fusion or five-axis support in Fusion 360 or any of the other uh, kind of lower priced CAD cam solutions? Like what was your original thinking for? How, how are people going to use this machine? What are they going to run? What software are they going to use? Because normally like the software that did, I think back then that did five axis was, you know, $20,000 a seat and up. So. Yeah, I guess the kind of the original, there wasn't much original thinking there. Um, again, the cards mostly lined up, but the one thing I do recall is, uh, you know, with, with machining that I would do, I, I just kind of translated that this is a three axis program. And then I would just write that program and then stitch all my programs together and say, you know, a 90 at the beginning of it. Yeah. And then I would just have different work coordinates. So you could, so that's for positional multi-axis. Yeah. So it it wasn't, yeah, there wasn't going to be, Pretty much no simultaneous anything. Okay. Um, okay. But then, yeah, one day in our, in my parents' basement, I got a call from Mike Esty. Um, so he was one of the original founders of um, the uh, other mill, which is now the Bantam Tools. But he, he called and he said, Matt, Autodesk is going to release some software that's going to be able to support your machine. Um, and it, it already supports ours because we're three axes, but uh, I think it's going to be able to support five axes. You should call these people. <laughs> and, and it's it, free. It, and it's free, <laughs> <laughs> which, which you can't beat. Yeah. So, um, you know, we started looking into that with, with everybody else. And that was actually a pretty big struggle, too, uh, just because uh, we... We, we probably weren't the first people they had tested stuff with, but we're, we were kind of the first people um, to have something five axis that... Um, you know, it was going to be like public. Uh, so, so there was, there was a lot of just finding out how things work and, and trying to um, make motion actually happen in a way that we, we thought it was going to, or that, you know, people would expect it to happen. So, oh yeah, no, that was difficult. Um, and such a, such a blessing. Um, yeah, it was yeah, crazy. The, ti- the timing of the, Five axis stuff in fusion couldn't have been perfect for us. I mean, it's interesting because you were a, you know, sounds like you, your vision for the machine, you weren't really thinking about necessarily supporting simultaneous five axis. It wasn't critical to this right. expected success, right? And I, I find that like using the machine myself, I do occasional simultaneous five axis, but the much more useful talent that that machine has is, is three plus two machining. The, and, right. Well, and that, the, the majority of, time say or the majority of time I guess spent in, in machining is um, you, you know when you're making a part can be just flipping the part and making fixtures right not the, yeah. the actual tool paths are pretty fast and even with we it's you know we were making five axis machines but we were making them on a three axis mill um, in the start and so we you know, we'd have six or seven operations on a, you know, six sided part. So, so yeah. it, it was You're like, getting we, good at fixing and flipping parts. Yeah. And, and, and we, so we saw it and, and that's what, you know, we knew the advantages I, I you know, as machining in the, my past, I, uh, I just, that's, that's kind of why we got so passionate about it is because we saw the, the benefit of the five axis, yeah. uh, and it's really the three plus two machining. And actually, Fusion at the time that we did Kickstarter, it didn't have full five axis. That was right. yeah, that's that right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It just didn't I mean, it wasn't even a part of the equation. It sounds like when you first started, I mean, it wasn't like oh, 
now there's fusion. Now we can make a five axis machine. It right. Was, not it was at just all. A I mean, we, happy we coincidence. <laughs> had other options, but there was nothing that really fit yeah. with our machine as well as fusion does. Yeah. I think your machine is less expensive than most of the software seats. Exactly. <laughs> it is by yes, a long yes. shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, kudos to Autodesk for making such a great product and putting it in the hands of, you know, not just pocket and users, but all the, the hobby and, and, uh, you know, small, I guess, hobby makerspace and small businesses. That's, uh, it's, to me, it's been game changing having access to that yeah. manufacturing software. You, you want to improve caliber. the economy. That's how, that's yeah. kind of how it's done, right? It's like making, yeah. making <laughs> software so people can start making it easy to be yeah. a manufacturer. Yes, absolutely. You guys, was there anything before, uh, V1? Like you said, you, you know, pretty quickly ruled out three axis, but before you did that, did you, get to like a prototype stage or was it just idea? It was just a CAD design. Okay. And then, so pocket NC V1 kind of, you were working on that long gap in the Kickstarter between the first sale of, you know, first money flowing the right way. Um, you got, you kicked off kind of a little side project to kind of help out with the, actually, I don't know if it was for fun. I'm not really sure what the motivation was, but the, uh, and I don't know much about this machine. I see a little bit out there. I don't know how well it was or how kind of popular it was, but you guys made, or you designed a three axis CNC machine called the FR4. And what was unique about it was FR4. It was basically made out of a PCB substrate, right? The whole frame of the machine. Yes. Um, yeah. And that actually came, so that came after, that, that was the summer was it the summer after yeah the campaign for that was almost exactly a year after our original kickstarter campaign. yeah right but before you started delivering machines no we had we had all of them oh, you were already delivering yeah okay i got you um so we, we yeah we thought we would experiment with that which i don't know if it was a mistake i mean <laughs> it's hard i feel like we can't say yeah that it was a mistake yeah um maybe a failed experiment, but yeah. one that like we yeah. learned a lot from it. it. It it proved to us that like the three axis market wasn't where we wanted to be. Sure, yeah. Um, that our brand identity really is in the five axis yeah. market. Um, Not to mention making a, ma- a machine incredibly um, low cost has um, just so many problems. I mean, it, you look at. Uh, like what Edward Ford did with uh, Shapeoko and the first Shapeoko that came out with was, I mean, it moved a pen around, I believe, right? It mm-hmm. was, uh, um, and it was incredibly neat, but you, you, you couldn't do maybe a ton with it. Whereas you look at the Shapeoko 3 and it's incredible, right? Yeah. So, you, I mean, it's just a really well-made, really well-thought-out machine. Um, and so I think... And, and, and that that's all because, you know, somebody's in a putting more money and an effort into um, a product, whereas the race to the bottom of 3D printers, well, you, you know, you see, you see get the best of companies all the time. Yeah. 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 I think the FR4, so Matt is like the quintessential inventor type that has these ideas and he can kind of get stuck on something until he gets out of the system <laughs> and having this machine that had the circuits integrated into the FR4 structure yeah. was something that he had thought of. It was like keeping him focused on the original pocket NC for that long was one of the most challenging uh. things. And so I, once we had finally gotten to the Kickstarter, we delivered the Kickstarter machines. We had a small team that was, continuing to build production Mm -hmm. machines he i feel like he just needed so that was your (laughs) anti-burnout solution that's what it was (laughs) yeah we know you write like a a, a mid-project crisis kind of project but no it was it was good yeah and it was fun like it took a lot of it took more soldering skills than i think we would have hoped for what it was and at the price point that it was and it was three hundred dollars right for the kit um, so, and, it, and it was worth 200 so <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. yeah and we made no money on that and so yeah it was it got us through this it did though. yeah right like we totally. the, it was just the kickstarter campaign was just successful enough to like reach the goal yeah. and make the thing so at least we just like with the original campaign we did plan 
carefully for it. So I think that is why, like, it, we planned well that yeah, it wasn't we were a disaster, able to produce right? it. It didn't tank yeah. us, but it didn't. And I think it probably holds the record as the cheapest CNC, or at least expensive CNC machine I've seen out there, the milling machine, right? Well, I mean, I guess you, I mean, maybe for five axes. No, no, I'm talking about the FR4. The, the FR4. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen anything cheaper that, that actually cuts The question material. is, have you seen videos of the FR4 actually cutting the material? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple. There's, there's a, a couple, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought, and I got to see that uh, I'm here in, in, at the Pocket and see their new office, and I got to see uh, a fully assembled FR4. I'll, I'll put some photos and links to that in the podcast show notes so everyone can see what we're talking about because there's really not much out there on youtube about that machine that was kind of i didn't realize it was your machine until i saw the logo on it <laughs> so I, I just had to know kind of where that fit into the story so thank you for sharing that um so like you were talking about the race to the bottom on 3d printers and kind of just the risk of if you do something you know hardware a hardware venture and it's successful there's always that threat from Asia that it's going to be, you know, probably, you know, cloned or copied probably poorly and end up in the market and, you know, at a minimum confusing people around brand, you know, they might buy that machine and think, okay, five axis machines are terrible and never buying one again. Um, I think you guys are pretty well insulated because your machine is, uh, you know, having walked around your, your kind of manufacturing floor, A, it's a fairly complex machine. Um, there's a lot that goes into assembly and calibration that, you know, it's not easily replicable, right? And there's probably a lot of tribal knowledge uh, that doesn't leave these walls about how to make a good functional, accurate desktop five axis machine. It's a pretty, pretty tough moat to cross, uh, which I thought was, I don't know if that was intentional, but that was a really good thing about going five axis is you're probably uh, going to be a little bit harder to I think knock it off, was you know, even more of an advantage than <laughs> we realized that we expected a pretty direct knockoff to happen within like the first year. And there are knockoffs out there, but they're like, they're just not even close. Yeah. Like, and the, the, I think in general, people are much more aware of that threat. And we also have always prioritized customer service that we try to, we try to always help people out and not charge them money for doing yeah. that. And I think people know when they get a Chinese machine, what the experience is going to be like aside from the quality. Yeah. yeah I think if somebody's going to be spending the kind of money they do on uh, a machine, you know, our, our machine has gone up in price significantly since the Kickstarter, but um, you know, part of that is quality and, and, there's some traceability to that quality too, that, you know, we were always blogging about, um, we've been less active now, uh, you know, lately, yeah. but it, process but just, improvement and, yeah, yeah, and, and continuous and improvement on the machine. That's our own fault. And it's not, that's not by like design. That's just, you're busy, busy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, but yeah, so there's some traceability to how we're improving, um, the product and, and then, you know, not to mention what's really great is, you know, people have problems and then they, they post it on forums and stuff and it gives us an opportunity to, to say, Hey, you know, we can, you can fix this this way or this way, or you can get in contact us with us and, and help it. And it, you know, we can, we can help you. Um, whereas, yeah, like Michelle said, I, I think you really, people know when they, they're going to go buy some Chinese knockoff that it probably is coming with zero support. Yeah, exactly. It might not work when it can, when you <laughs> yeah. get it. Yeah. It quits working. You just throw it away. So, um, I know you got, like you mentioned, you still have Kickstarter machine owners out there still running their machines. You're still supporting them. Yeah. Um, I heard from some of them actually when the V250 came out because actually I didn't even catch it on the release that you guys had the a V1 to V250 upgrade path like you did yeah. from the V1 to V2. And there seemed, that seems to be um, generating some excitement. Yeah, it's been my followers. fun between the spindle on the V250 and having the interface upgrade available that in the past month or so, we've seen quite a few Kickstarter users kind of come out yeah. of the woodworks, and it's like now they can have a little pride about being V one's getting a little bit of love. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. So I thought that was really cool. That was exciting. I didn't actually know um, a that there was that many V one V ones out there. Right, still still mm -hmm. getting used. Um, I know one user that I talked to a lot that has one, but um, overseas. 
they're basically not stuck, right? They can. Yeah, right. We we that's something we're pretty proud of internally is is that we 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 do try to leave options for you know the original people because we wouldn't be around without them and and we also you know pro, we don't really charge people for support. I don't think, but yeah. that's, I mean that's, you have a formal yeah. warranty, but yeah, yeah, I think we, yeah, but but the warranty the warranty's gone. People people here just kind of give stuff away, which has been great for for those people because not only do we learn from how to you know make stuff better but you know they, they don't feel left in the dust and um yeah. yeah yeah that's important especially like for me you know the, the bacchus was bigger than my normal purchase towards yeah. My hobby. So <laughs> yeah, yeah right. i had to really think about i mean i think i thought about it for two days and then i clicked buy but <laughs> when it was announced i had another yeah. one but um but yeah I, and having owned it now and seeing kind of how even like the V1 users are getting taken care of. It gives me a lot of confidence in that purchase. So, yeah. Um, and to be fair, like carbide 3d and, uh, Bantam tools are both, they're very similar. They have yeah. great reputation for customer support. My experience with them has been really good. Um, you know, they take care of their users. I think that's you, important. You can tell, space, right? right. They don't have a bunch of people out there bashing what they're doing, right? Yeah. They, they got nothing but, um, people who are just have great things to say. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's obvious. So you guys, um, just talking a little bit about the facility here, you moved in, this is your, I think Matt told me this is your fourth yeah. move. Yeah. So you've been growing. Um, not counting the, the garage the shed, or the basement, the basement yeah. or the garage. <laughs> yeah. Fourth commercial space. Right? Um, so, and you, I know you, um, you posted once about, uh, you, you now have a house UMC 755 access yeah. machine. Right. You make almost all the parts in house, mm -hmm. uh, mainframe, all, all the major structural parts. Yeah. And, uh, you, you guys ended up with the spark funds pick and place one of the little pick and place machines. <laughs> yeah, we did. Right? Yeah. So even doing that in house, that little pick and place has been a workhorse past couple of years. I mean, do you use it for production or just prototyping? Yeah. We use it for okay. production boards too. That might change at some point. Yeah. I guess it didn't make sense for prototyping. It's too many. You, you, spark, spark fun, uh, was great. So I reached out to them asking what kind of machine, we should look for. And they replied back and said, we've got a machine in our basement. You, 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 you know, we'll sell to you way cheaper than, than it's worth. And, um, and it was great. I got to go out there and learn about them. And, um, they're just, you know, the nicest bunch of people. They teach you how to run it. And they did. Yeah. They yeah spent, so, and they spent the, over the weekend too. They, they spent <laughs> the, uh, a Friday and a Saturday teaching me how to use it. And then on Sunday we packed it into a U-Haul truck and, shipped it back to, to Montana. But, and then the, you know, they, they warned us like this, this machine, we, we stopped using it cause it drops so many components and, and, and it misplaces them and things get skewed all the time. And, and they said, it's a huge pain to work with, but if you want to work with it, you know, by all means, and it's, it's been great for us. And you know, now we can start to see the value of, um, uh, doing, doing something else, but it really gave us, uh, you know, room to figure out what we're doing. Um, get a benchmark of, of what to, to expect and then yeah. move forward. Even if you went to improve. like, yeah. Um, even if you went out, you know, out to a, a, a fab and mm -hmm. to, you know, you kind of have a, even like just being able to prototype in yeah. house is huge. Like when we were in the garage, Matt was soldering the boards by hand. Yeah. Like, the, there's boards with like hundreds of components <laughs> that were all in my hand. Uh, the, they're, most of them are 0603. So it's something oh, okay. that most people physically yeah. are not I can't do 0603. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can when you're young because you, you have young <laughs> eyes. And yeah, now I find my, my eyes watering when I look at stuff too much. I've looked at too many close objects. Yeah. So uh, Michelle, you, you so, I mean, Matt seems like he focuses on the mechanical mm -hmm. and uh, design side. So what do you, what is your typical day like at Foxman so, these days? I have always been doing the business development. My, I am, my background is in mechanical engineering, but I'm not a designer <laughs> by any means. So that has helped to be able to, to help drive things. Um, but it's been all of the business development. I'm just, I'm self-taught in developing the business. So it's just a lot of like learning how to do all of the things CE certification and export controls and all of the finance. So now that we have Carrie working for us, she is amazing and has helped lighten the load. Like up until 
about two years ago, I was doing all the customer service and all of that. So, um, yeah, now it, it's nice that I'm able to be released. I still do all of our accounting because mm-hmm. I like to have an eye on that, especially with like Matt being the personality that he is. He has like this shiny object fascination with like, <laughs> like that, when he it's talks like about yeah. that when that he was asking Spark Fun. <laughs> for recommendations on a pick and place. Yeah, they're like, like I, I was looking at their pick and places and they, they said, well, ours cost as much as a Ferrari. So those were, won't be the ones you want to get. Um, but yeah, his they, attitude is always like, well, it doesn't hurt to ask and then we'll know how much it costs. And then that's when we start like the back and forth of like, what will it take to add this to our equipment? Yeah. And so... It's how I can sleep at night to be yeah. to have a, a close tabs on that. But now it's also within the first the last few months has been the first time that we have employees that Matt and I don't work directly with. So yeah, it's it, a big change. It it has felt yeah. a lot different. So I've just been trying to work on really having a close eye on our culture and helping um, you know all of these engineer types. To communicate with each other right. um, when I when I sense tension in the shop developing into management like Matt and I were not trained in that it's just something we're learning how to do as we go and I think in the past we've failed to address interpersonal issues soon enough and so that has been a big part of what I've been trying to do now is like when I see something like, okay, let's get in a room and let's sit down and hash it out and squash it before it becomes something that's too big to fix. Yeah. Anybody can develop a product, right? Like I think about what we're doing and and I see plenty of projects on Instagram or wherever. I'm I'm like blown away by what they've done, but it takes a team, right? To like build a product. So I think that's probably the most important part of the business is, is, finding key people and and everybody we have right now is you know taking on a role that is completely key to to shipping machines so without that dynamic and culture i guess um you you, it's we're really not you know right now we're uh 14 people with michelle and i and we have two more people coming on in may it you know you can't coordinate with that many people um you know, every minute, every day. So, so it takes it. It does take a good, um, a good, strong culture to make sure you know things get done and and people are happy and um, and then people understand you know the the values internally. Um, and it, to to make a good product, it used to look more like it was just Matt and I making the big decisions that happened. So that mm-hmm. would happen like when we were on a walk with our kids yeah. at night, like you know, like. 24-7 that was happening as having this dynamic of going back and forth to figure out what we need to do next. So now that like it's a good problem to have that we have really good people working for us. So we need to shift to make sure that we're capitalizing on their strengths and and getting all of the input that we need before yeah. making a decision. You know, Matt, you mentioned there's one thing to build a product, right? Or build something, but like I think what works for you guys is Matt, you seem to focus on building a product and Michelle, you seem to focus on building a company. Right. And those two together, like that's a good combination to have. Like it a is. lot of businesses yeah. don't have that, right? They either have the inventor who's trying to start a business and probably doesn't have the right skill set. Um, or they have, you know, maybe business people that don't have the right technical chops to pull yeah. a product together, especially hardware products. So that's you guys um, in a good place. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 we, we struggle with everything that everybody else does too, right? Yeah. But it, it, there's just so much workload to take on that, yeah, having having somebody you can trust and um, that really knows, you, you know, you, you share, you have common interests, right? Yeah. And, and common goals so that that helps because we can split the workload and know that the other person has our best interest at heart. So you guys, and you know, we've talked kind of about where you came from, uh, kind of what you're currently doing, the exciting news about the B250. You guys comfortable talking about 
what pocketency looks like in the 2020s? Some of it, I think. Uh, <laughs> when you, yeah, right. No, I, I have actually mentioned to you, like, we're not very secretive about very many things. Um, I mean, you've seen, like, we tend to drop yeah, some seen hints that. around. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, no, we, so as far as um, bigger machines, um, we're working on one that's, I don't want to say compete with Daytron because we, we actually are huge fans of Daytron. <laughs> now that we're kind of... I don't know that. Rid, rid, yeah, right. But, but like create something that's cool. Inspired that by Daytron. Yeah, inspired. You're right. Yes. No, because they, they make... You know, there's companies out there that are making such incredible hardware that you want to be making a machine that allows people to complete their project, right? So one, one thing we notice internally is, you know, we're going to make apart for some prototype for some new project and where do we turn you know we turn to our big machines because we want to get it done fast and and because of that we say well so there's the need you know if we should be working towards making a machine that we would use internally for developing products and and so that's that's our goal is to to make a machine um, on that front b2 it's not the end of the line, right? That's, no. That's kind of what I was getting and, at. Yeah, right. The, no, the v, and it can't be the end of the line for us because it's it's a great tool. But again, people want more industrial machines. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a huge empty field between uh, five axis, like where you're at with pocket and C and like the next higher level industrial machine. Um, like I, I was kind of looking around. I think the cheapest way to get into five axis uh Beyond, you know, beyond the pocket and see is like something like a brother speedio five axis mill drill, right? That's probably, you know, it's in the getting close to three or six figures fully decked out for right. one of those. And then gets much more expensive after that for, you know, a true dedicated five axis machine. Um, so yeah, I think there's room somewhere in between that, you know, maybe closer to Tormach pricing and capability as far as, uh, uh, power and that kind of stuff. So I'm excited yeah. to see what you guys, I can't wait. Hurry up. <laughs> yeah, no. We're definitely still oh, yes. pretty early in the development process. I'll save Carrie some emails that of people listening to your podcast saying, I'm ready for the bigger machine. <laughs> the pro. Um, and it's a, it'll be a new beast for us, you know, yeah. trying to add some features that we haven't had on previous machines. Um, but it's, we're thankful that it feels like we're always in the position where there's so many exciting things that we get to pick from of what to work on. It's just deciding where we want to take the company and what we want to make. Um, yeah. That I don't think it, not every, every company is lucky enough to have that problem. Hmm. Well, it's, you know, I, I enjoyed meeting uh, the team earlier today. You really got some yeah. bright folks working here. Um, really was a surprise to me just how much is involved in making an accurate machine during the assembly process. It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, and the, and the, and calibration. I mean, you guys have that down to a science, but it's, you know, it's amazing. There's that much going on behind the scenes to, to put out a machine like that. So that was eye opening to me. Um, I'll have some fit, some photos of some of that to share. I think, you know, I just really want to thank you guys for the time and I'm glad you were able to make it on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This was wonderful. Yeah, thanks for coming yeah. to visit. It was really interesting talking to Matt and Michelle. Just kind of seeing what was going on in the assembly process was pretty eye-opening for me. I didn't realize, you know, it's a pretty small machine. I just kind of assumed it went together pretty easily, but there's a lot of parts in, that, in the pocket and seeing a lot of uh, process behind getting it accurate. That was kind of like my biggest takeaway was seeing um, all the in-house processes that they developed to make the machine kind of more accurate and easier to assemble. So that kind of, I think they talked about that a little bit in the, or in the interview. That story was pretty much what I expected because it's going to be really hard to to break into the the five axis world, um, even harder to break into a three axis world. But they they found their niche. Um, but I can't imagine just all the challenges they had to surmount. Like without uh, fusion, like they would have been dead in the water without a good cam solution for their users. Um, just trying to come up with a supply chain for all the parts. Um, it's it's not surprising to me at all that they, they went through some pretty hairy times to get to this point. 
That theme seems to be pretty common to at least the, uh, the small machine makers that we've interviewed so far. You know, Daniel's story about Bantam, or I guess it was other machine code back in the day, almost not making it right after the DARPA grant dried up and kind of turned around and doing pretty well now. Um, someday we'll have Carbide on, and I'm sure there's probably some interesting stories there too about the early days. I know they've um, they've they've been through a couple nail biters. Yeah. So the interesting thing is, you know, they're doing it in Bozeman, which is you know not your typical. At least to me, I don't know much about Montana, uh, or I didn't before I went there. Kind of did a little research, but um, there's actually quite a bit of uh, R and D and high tech going on in Bozeman because they have the university there, right? Or Montana State University's there. And their shop's a little bit out of the city now. They were, I think their last location was right in kind of the heart of the, the Trinity District there. And now they moved a little bit further out in the burbs of Bozeman. I know uh, from talking to, to Matt and Michelle that there's, I guess there's starting to be kind of a migration of uh, some Silicon Valley talent to that area. And there's um, uh, quite a bit of, uh, or quite a few laser companies or a little bit of the U.S. laser industry is kind of centered in Bozeman, which I, I did not know. So I'm sure that's helping, right? So they're, they have a really talented team on board, and um, I know they're still growing. I think Michelle mentioned they're going to be hiring a few more pretty soon. That, that's good to know. I had no idea that uh, Bozeman was sort of a up-and-coming area. It, it's definitely less um, middle of nowhere than I thought it was. Oh yeah. And it's beautiful there. I mean, it's, it's not far from Yellowstone, which I, I got to go tour that one day. Um, it was probably like less than an hour to get to the, the gate. And that was in bad weather or cold weather, frozen roads. Right. So probably 30 minutes in the summer to get over there. Uh, definitely your kind of territory. Cause I know you like the state parks and national parks and all that stuff. It's uh, yeah. The, the outdoors is my thing. Um, exploring cities. Like if you gave me a choice between like the Alps or like, uh, just, any good hiking area, mountain range versus like visiting Paris or something, I would take the outdoors in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, you, d- you definitely like uh, Montana. Um, so I'm trying to think what else was neat about that. I posted a lot of stuff on Instagram. You know, they're using like most most of the small machine manufacturers. They've got some big machines and they're doing a lot of the self, uh, a lot of self-manufacturing, right, for most of their stuff. They have a couple of Haas machines there, including the a five-axis UMC 750 to make the uh, most of the big parts for the pocket and see the frame pieces. Yeah, which that's that's pretty easy to see how that fits into their process. Do you have any idea how they're going to use that pick and place? Well, they've had it for a while. So, they, yeah, they use that for their boards. So all their boards are, um, well, let me back up a little bit. So they, they use an off-the-shelf component as the main control for this system, the BeagleBone Black, which is similar to Raspberry Pi. Um, but they have their own custom-designed driver, you know, 5-axis driver board for that. It attaches the attaches to the beagle bone. They they've successfully folded that into everything, despite its apparent flakiness. Sounds like they get a lot of value out of being able to do a lot of the prototyping in house and small runs. You know, basically just having the fast turnaround of having it all done inside their shop. You've seen the probing stuff I posted on Instagram, right? And I think they had that in their blog last year. They're using a small Renishaw probe to calibrate the the rotary axis on the, the two rotary axis on the machine. So that was, uh, that was pretty neat seeing that in, the, in person. I'm sure it's difficult to try and remember all the cool stuff that you can actually talk about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they're actually pretty open about everything. So that was, that was kind of neat. You know, they, they've got to be careful because they, again, they're in the mind, you know, they are in the five axis machine manufacturing business. So that does tend to bring some regulatory, oversight from the federal government related to, I guess, more export controls. And, you know, it's kind of a weird world once you start getting into that. Even even the hobby level machines apparently uh, have to kind of comply with a lot of regulatory paperwork. I think, yeah, you guys deal with that too, probably over at Carbide a little bit. Uh, every now and then, um, some federal agency will, will send us an inquiry about, hey, who got that machine over in what country? Um, but... I don't know. I, for me, seeing the limits of the machine, I can't imagine anyone making two series apart. Like you're not going to make like aerospace parts out of titanium. Like you're not going to equip your next generation fighter jet in like North Korea with this thing. How's um how's the work life culture at a uh, Pocket NC? So they work Monday through Friday. Like I was really shocked. I was expecting to see 
like seven days a week. You know how the small startups are, right? They tend to yeah. work all the time. Um, and this is kind of a big time for them because they have the new product, uh, the V250 coming out. So I figured it, you know, it'd be even busier than normal. Um, but no, they're, they're really good about kind of keeping the work-life balance. Yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of a, maybe a Montana thing. I don't know, but you know, they were proud, rightfully proud of that. Just, you know, not really pushing hundred percent work life, zero percent. Yeah. They're, they're not like pedal to the metal, burning themselves out. Well, that's good. Yeah. And you know, it's a young company with a very young, uh, the founders are young and so is the staff. I was definitely the oldest guy walking around the building. Um, so yeah, I think they're, they all have busy lives to live outside of work. So, and it's good to see that they're at a place that lets them do that. Have you seen the FR, the FR4 that I was talking about? I, yeah, I did, um, way back in the day, um, just about the time when I got my V2, just cause I was trying to see what, what pocket NC was all about. Um, but it sounds like that it kind of was a dead end. Yeah, I think they sold I don't know how many they sold. Apparently they sold enough to be happy that they did the venture. Um, it's a pretty neat little machine. They have one there. They had one fully assembled. Uh, I didn't actually run it, um, but I got to play around with it, take some pictures of it. It's small. I mean, it's smaller than even the the Bantam Tools machine. Um, and I don't think it could machine metal. It's definitely a, or a CNC machine for doing wax, probably at best. Um, but it was kind of neat. It was, it was, uh, and I saw some stuff that basically is on the pocket and see now, like device, device was on that machine. And, uh, and first time I've ever seen ER8 collets <laughs> for the spindle. Those were, that was kind of neat. That sounds adorable. Yeah. So I'll have pictures for the, uh, linked into the podcast. I got some good pictures of it. It was just, it was interesting to see it cause I didn't really know until I started doing a little bit of research before my trip that that was even out there and that that was their product. Um, kind of surprised I never saw it when it first came out cause I probably would have bought it <laughs> cause I think it was <laughs> pretty sure that was before other mill. I'm not sure. Um, but that's exactly like what I was looking for. The first time I was looking for a CNC machine was something small and quiet and kind of with the built-in enclosure, like that machine, it, it really just looked like almost like a scaled down version of a other mill as far as form factor. So I know you said that pocket NC they're, they're growing, they're adding people. Um, how do you, how do you feel about their outlook? Do, do you feel like, uh, they could become a bigger player in a, I don't know, a higher end machine game, or uh, do you think they'll broaden like five axis in sort of our hobby machinist space? Where do you think they'll be in like five, 10 years? without saying whether or not they'll have a new product in whatever uh, market. Yeah, so Matt you know, Matt mentioned that they are working on kind of the next gen, what I'm calling the next gen machine beyond the V2. Um, so even with the V250 out, they're still selling the, the original V2. So I don't, I think that's probably, even if they come out with this uh, machine that Matt was talking about, it sounds like it's gonna be a little bit bigger, a little bit more uprated capabilities and probably upgraded price maybe more pro or prosumer than, than the V2. I think that they would still keep something like the V2 in their product line. So, you know, it is a little bit different market. I think they're, they're going to kind of be moving more towards, uh, people using these machines for commercial purposes. So it's very similar to what Bantam did. You know, they started off with the kind of targeting the hobby maker market. And now I think they're most, most of their sales are to universities and companies doing prototyping work. Um, you know, trying to put, CNC machine right on the engineers or the designers desktop. That seems to be the sweet spot for kind of where these small machines are going. So I think uh, Bant, I mean, uh, pocket and C's cognizant of that too. That's probably if I had to guess, they're going to not leave that market unaddressed. So five axis is definitely here to stay. It's not a fad and they're going to keep pushing in the direction they're going. I think they'll stick with five axis too. I don't think they're, you know, they, they seem pretty adamant about not wanting to enter the, three axis space. Um, just a little too crowded in there. Right. Yeah. I, I can sympathize with their, their feelings. Yeah. And, uh, I, I dropped some hints like maybe 20 times that, uh, it'd be great if someone would come up with a CNC desktop CNC lathe. <laughs> <laughs> I tell everybody, I tell it for that too. I think, um, yeah, I'm sure that must be a little bit more challenging cause no one's done it yet, but, and I want one with, um, sub spindle and live tooling. So it's not asking too much. And hobby price, right? Hobby hobby machine oh, price. Of course. Yeah. Those are all very reasonable requests. <laughs> but um yeah, we'll see. I don't know if anyone's gonna bite on that. 
enough about my trip. I heard you just got back from uh, from New York, right? Were you at a show up there? Yeah, um, MJSA is a sort of a jewelry trade show uh, where all the the manufacturers and distributors in that world get together and show off what's new. And uh, Carbide 3D, um, our Nomad is dis- distributed through uh, Rio Grande, and they had a big booth there, and they invited us to show off our machine there. And while I was there, I got to see sort of a lot of their tools and the 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 jewelry side of things. And it's a very different world. But one of the things that everyone was asking there was, does the Nomad have a fourth or a fifth axis? Because apparently that's something they really look for in a CNC machine, because then you can do like rings and more complex shapes. Um, so, and those machines, because it's the jewelry industry, get pretty pricey. So um, I I think um, if Pocket NC wants to pivot to a, a more... Slightly more industrial, bigger volume, more capable, more linked in with different CAD CAM packages uh, type machine for like a low five-figure price point. They, they actually have a decent shot at breaking into that market, I think. You know, I always talk about how there's kind of a big gulf between five-axis machine like the Pocket NC kind of aimed at the sub-$10,000 mark and then the next kind of price increment for five-axis is closer to six figures, right? Um, and, and up from there, but actually, yeah, there are, there are quite a few kind of specialty vertical machines that are, um, in between probably those price ranges. I know there's some dental machines, right? So there's a bunch of dental five axis machines out there, small, uh, like to go into practice. Uh, I think Roland makes one. I know, uh, HSC pro on Instagram, he's working for a company that that's marketing some small machines. Uh, I don't think the price tags are all that small on those machines because uh, they're probably, you know, they are professional, like they're, they're a little bit higher end than that uh, or probably considerably higher end than a uh, hobby machine, but physically they're small. And I, I'm sure there's probably very similar set of companies, you know, servicing the jewelry market and probably even medical. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some, some machines we haven't heard of that, you know, not really like full range industrial CNC, just kind of really specialty machines. Um, with, you know, four or five axes. So not to give this company any more uh, traffic is I have no affiliation with them. And in fact, I, I kind of had a, a weird vibe talking with them. But uh, NSCNC, um, that's November Sierra CNC, was at that show and they had, I think, the Mira 6 uh, five axis machine. You can look that up later in your t- uh, spare time, but... That's a $24,000 machine, and it doesn't look like the work area is significantly larger than the V2. And I think the only thing it has going for it is an NSK spindle, uh, some, some good work holding for like wax and other stock that's common in the jewelry, jewelry world, and um, integration with their like the usual CAD CAM packages that you would find on that side of the industry. It's very specialized software, I would imagine. Right? Yeah, it is. I was talking with them and I was like, do you guys support like uh, HSM Works or like uh, Mastercam or Fusion 360? And the guy looked at me like I was, he was like, oh no, we use like real like CAD CAM software. And I was like, what? And I was like, but you know, it can do simultaneous five. And the guy didn't believe me. And I showed him a video and he was like, eh, yeah, maybe like he just, he didn't take the engineering side of the industry seriously. And I, I see this as like, just like jewelry people, engineers, um, like we're siloed in very vertically integrated uh, workflows and we don't talk to each other, even though these machines, they could probably work in either industry, but just because everyone speaks a certain lingo, they use a certain software package. It's, it's very hard for a general purpose machine like the Nomad to like fit in there. Uh, unless you can hook into like the right softwares or you write a, a post-processor specifically for, I don't know, like Rhino or uh, Matrix or 3Design. Like they have their own language there, but the fundamental technologies are all the same. What I'm, what I'm just trying to say is that Pocket NC should maybe just make a slightly more capable machine just throw it out there for like $12,000 and see if they can like shake up a different industry. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I mean, other than the software um, 
you know, integration with, with the kind of specialty software they're, they're using in that industry. I would think the VT50 already um, would be a very good machine for jewelry. There's a lot of jewelry work going on, or like mold making, uh, wax machining going on with the VT10, um, just based on the people I've heard from that have the machine asking for help. I'm assuming that's like just the tip of the iceberg, right? There's quite a few probably other folks doing the same thing with it that I'll never hear from. But um, yeah, but yeah, with the faster spindle, I think this machine's uh, really set up for doing that type of small fine detail work. It's really almost like engraving, right? Uh, it's not much more. Pretty much you use a tiny tool and it's it's very low cutting force. Yeah, and really fine lines or fine pockets on the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as long as you have good resolution, I I think you could make a compelling uh, pass at trying to win over some some of these companies. The small machines I have here, I see quite a bit of use in. You know, kind of it's a different audience than what I focus on. It's more um, it's quite a few what I would call designers using the machines that aren't really mechanical or manufacturing focused, right? They're pure design people that just happen to found this outlet for like producing their prototype or whatever it is they're, they're it's like a piece of their process right but it's not a big it's not a big part of what they're doing i'm not really focused on machining just that's yeah the, i heard that a lot at the show yeah it's just the tool to get them to their final goal which is usually a a piece of art right basically i yeah i t- kind of think that the additive is probably going to push out um subtractive for like the wax prototypings, anything you have to invest or cast, just because the it's kind of uh, maturing the technology for printing resins that can be burned out, and you're going to get shapes that you just can't really do on a subtractive milling machine. So the case for like wax specific CNC machines, I think that's going to become like a smaller and smaller market. Um, so I like the pocket NC being a general purpose platform. Like you could machine a ring out of titanium if you wanted to directly. Um, that would definitely, uh, make all the wax specific five axis CNC makers out there quake in their boots, I think. So I think I'm going to call it a night, buddy. Um, and I, I will, we can talk more about the kind of the details of what you saw there. I saw some pretty interesting stuff you were posting on Instagram, but uh, on the next episode, let's kind of dig in a little deeper into what you saw there. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for uh, bringing back those stories from Montana, Eddie, and um, have a good night. All right. Good night, Winston.